Hi, this is Gary Meese with the Case Against. I think we're on episode 47. We'll try out something different today, and my uh, my usual microphone is I'm having a problem getting it hooked up, and since I'm trapped trapped at home like everybody else, it's not as if I can take it to a little shop and get the problem fixed. Uh, the little shop wouldn't be open, and frankly, I don't know where there's a little shop around here like that anyway, though I, I'm sure I could find one. I'm going to be uh, going over the investigation discovery special that was this weekend. I'm not going to go through the whole special, certainly not in this episode. It's three hours. I'm not going to spend three hours on here, particularly with me throwing in interjections and talking. Um uh, but I am going to look at what I consider to be a particularly crucial part of the of this of what's presented, which is in uh, episode one. And let me preface all this by saying that any reproduction I'm doing of of this show is strictly for fair use purposes and commentary. Uh, I'm not uh, broadcasting the show out to anybody. I'm not tr- violating any kind of uh, copyright laws or any anything of that sort by quoting excerpts, audible quotations of excerpts for the purposes of criticism is a valid is a valid and fair use. So let me just say that on the front end in case that comes up. Which you know, with the way things go, I, I don't know how many people even listen to this, so it could, probably couldn't be uh, too much of an issue. But, you know, I could get, could get bumped off for that reason. So I, I want to make my argument on the front end. Now, uh, we've already had a few minutes. I'm not going to start at the first of this. I'm going to start somewhere into it, basically about 15, 16 minutes and 27 seconds into it. Uh, they've already covered... Uh, the disappearance of the boys, uh, a lot of uh, less than complete information and somewhat misleading information, uh, even in that uh, they managed to mix up uh, Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers at one point. Uh, they show aerial photos of an area that's not the area where the boys were discovered. Uh, there are other I could get into, you know, particularly the reporting of the of the missing boys. Uh, the poli- Regina Meek was aware when she went to John Mark Byers, the Byers home. She was aware that three boys were missing. She didn't take full reports on all three, but she was aware that three boys were missing. So technically, she didn't file a report on on uh, Dana Moore until. After nine, uh, Terry Hobbs, uh, who was also on the scene, whether he was, he may not have been there exactly when she first showed up at 1110, but he was around there at some point during that time because Mark Byers and Dana Moore both mentioned him. And he says himself he was. But anyway, the, he, he was there. So she, they were comparing notes, and they said all three boys were off together. So he was under the impression that they had also had a report filed. Um, and, of course, he somewhat famously at this point didn't 
file an actual report with the police until he picked up his wife at the restaurant she was working at, Catfish Island, uh, around 9, 9, 10, 9.15, somewhere like that. Uh, Bob Ruff made a big deal out of this. I'm not really sure that it's worthy of the kind of attention that it's got, particularly when you consider <laughs> If you consider that to be evidence against, against Hobbs and you totally discount all this other evidence against Damien Eccles, you just you really are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. But anyway, I'm going to briefly play this. Uh, audio quality is not going to be great. Uh, audio quality is not going to be great on any of this show, I don't think. But uh, I, I don't have an audio engineer, and I'm really improvising uh, recording, just using this now getting to be a rather ancient uh, Mac Air book. So, you know, I, I'm not happy with the quality of, I'm usually not happy with the quality of audio anyway, and I mean, I, I wish it was better, but I'm not an audio engineer. I'm not really, quali it's above my pay grade. I'm just simply trying to put out some information about the West Memphis Three. I'm not trying to uh, become a full-time podcaster or anything of that nature at all. Frankly, it's something I don't think I'm all that well suited for, but here I am. While searching for here we go. second graders Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, juvenile probation officer Steve Jones discovers something disturbing. Jones. Let me say this: is there's a couple of different accounts about this, and they make it seem like Steve Jones is in the woods all by himself. There were other searchers around. Um, and uh, in, in testimony at trial, in Muskelly trial, Mike, uh, Mike Allen who was a sergeant with the police off, he's now the sheriff of Crittenden County, was a sergeant with the police department at the time. <coughs> he, uh, he first testified that he saw two shoes floating in the water, uh, and then in the Eccles-Baldwin trial, he describes this account, which is that he'd gotten this that word that there was a shoe floating, a, a sne small sneaker floating in the water. So he showed up. Uh, the way they depict this is really pretty humorous, but I'll get into it in just a minute. Was the person that first saw an initial clue, a tennis shoe that had no shoelaces, he radioed for help saying that he had found something of interest. One of the officers that responds is Sergeant Mike Allen from the West Memphis Police Department. He decides then to go in. Okay. <laughs> I'm coughing, but I don't have coronavirus. Um, Mike Allen, they got a guy that doesn't look anything like Mike Allen, except he's a white guy, uh, going into the water. And the way they depict this is it's this nice, kind of nice-looking flowing stream with what looks, it, it's not that deep. I'm a, I mean, that looks like it's about six inches deep flowing over these rocks. You can see into it. The, the 
water's clear. It's kind of broad. It's probably 15, 20 feet across. This looks nothing like the, the little muddy drainage ditch where the boys were found. And they show, uh, in this depiction, Mike Allen is sort of wading into the water when, in fact, what happened was he sees a shoe in the water. He goes down the bank. He leans against a tree that was over the, uh, that's how small it is. His trees were actually leaning over to the bank. So he can be on one side of the bank leaning into a tree on the other side of the bank. He loses his footing, and he was wearing dress shoes and dress pants and falls into the water. He didn't just wade in there. And I guess the idea was he was going to take a closer look at the shoe and then they were going to see what they were going to do about retrieving it. And instead, because he lost his, uh, lost control of the situation, he fell into the water. And uh, they'll go into what happens then. But anyway, here we go. Into the water. This canal is only about two or three feet deep, but it's... Yeah, and then the, you got Diane Diamond, who I'm sure really knows nothing about this case, except what she's reading from the script. She says it's two or three feet deep, which is correct, but then they show him splashing with barely getting the water over his shoes. Really murky and muddy and full of sediment. <laughs> yeah, and the water doesn't look that murky either. You can't see the bottom, so... What could be down there? Mike Allen slipped into the water, get his dress shoes and his slacks. He moves a little further into the water. And here's, here's the, just one of the most obnoxious and horrible people in the world, Mara Leverett. Uh, she does know something about the case. She knows enough. She knows where to cut, what to cover up more than anything else. But I uh, will. I think her description here of this is fairly accurate, so we'll go on. And as he does, his foot dislodges something, and up come some bubbles. And it was a shocking thing. It's a naked child's body. It turns out to be Michael Moore. Now, and they, they've got these cheesy... Uh, pictorials here of this little hand with mud smeared all over it, uh, which is pretty grotesque. You know, the mud was, I mean, they were in mud, so they had some mud adhering to them, but, you know, a lot of this is done for uh, television purposes, entertainment purposes, as it were. In fact, this whole reproduction of the crime using actors is is showbiz. It has nothing to do with crime documentary. And it's often misleading as I'm, even when they, when they say, you know, the water's two or three feet deep and the guy's walking around in water that looks like it's maybe four inches deep. It's, it's sort of self-evidently inaccurate just on the basis of between what the reporter's saying and what the, the pictures are showing, what the video is showing. But I'll go on. The condition of Michael's body was horrific. He had bruises all over. There were wounds on his head. Also, his right arm was tied to his right leg, and his left arm was tied to his left leg with a shoelace on each side, making his body arch outwards. 
it was a gruesome discovery. The next thing that he finds is a Cub Scout hat in the water. Uh, Michael Moore was wearing his Cub Scout uniform that day, so that's when they, they do show actual photos of the actual scene where you can see that the, the actual ditch, ditch looks nothing like this nice little stream they're wading around in. Uh, and that is a picture of the actual little hat. Other members of the West Memphis Police Department had also come and it was so clear that there was going to be a really awful task ahead. Somebody was going to have to search the bottom of this creek. Brian Ridge volunteered to tackle that job. So he got into the water on all fours and began searching with his hands. First thing. Now, all this is accurate enough. The uh, Brian Ridge get, has been just criticized right and left for all sorts of things in this case. Can you imagine what kind of courage and fortitude it took to get down and your hands and knees in that muddy ditch and go walk, walking on your hands and knees, exploring, looking for the bodies of small children. It, bo it boggles the mind. Uh, if he never did anything else in his whole life, I would say the man was a hero just for doing that. And obviously somebody had to do it, but he stepped up. Detective Bridge finds is a stick stuck in the muck. He picks it up, pulls it out, and it's got some clothing wrapped around it. It was a, a white shirt belonging to a child. As he explores the canal, Ridge quickly discovers more clothing-wrapped branches. What are these sticks? Are they symbolic of something? Or were they merely designed to submerge the clothing to hide the evidence? Ridge continues searching the waterway for the other two boys. Downstream, he finds the naked body of Stevie Branch. He is face down in water and like my says Stevie Branch is face down in the water. Well, he was, his face was jammed down into the mud and, uh, which would raise a question of how turtles would be feeding on his face if his face was jammed down into the mud, if the animal predation theories are uh, correct. And then they're not explained a little bit. I'm not saying that there couldn't have been some animal predation going on, I guess, but uh, it would have been extremely diff extremely unlikely that you're going to have turtles uh, in the nighttime in this small ditch digging down into the mud to feed on this uh, feet on this this wound and they certainly wouldn't go down there if there was a prist, pristine child's face down there if uh if he had been stabbed which he was he, he was stabbed in the face gouged in the face a number of times uh that is where the the wounds came from and uh 
if, if there was any animal predation going on with him and with Stevie Branch, it was because they had been wounded, they were bleeding, and maybe they attract some small predators of some sort. We'll go on with this. Like a war, he too has his arms and legs on either side tied by a shoelace. Stevie's body had obviously gone through immense trauma. The side of his face was completely gouged out. It looked like he had been severely beaten. These were police officers, but I don't think any man there had ever experienced anything as horrifying as this. They were children, naked, and bound. It was a lot to process. Well, she says it's a lot to process. I'm sure it's true, but I doubt I doubt if she got that from her heart-to-heart talks with the police officers. Detective Richardson finds Christopher Byers. He was in a similar condition in that he had obviously been beaten. He was also tied, but something was different. When detectives rolled him over, they saw something stunning. Stevie Branch's scrotum had been removed. See, so here he calls him Stevie Branch. Uh, you know, they spent some money on this thing, and they had time to edit this. I occasionally make mistakes, like, and this is just a mistake, but I occasionally make mistakes like this, and with my rinky-dink little operation here, and I'll try to fix it with some sort of correction in the the notes or whatever, because I don't want to go back and re-record for an hour just to, to fix one small mistake. They have the capability of, of fixing this and they don't do it. So it's just it's just sloppiness. And the skin on his penis ripped off or cut off. It's so shocking pulling the bodies out of the water and the condition of the bodies and the way they were tied. What is going on here? This had started as a missing person search, and now, to everybody's horror, it was a triple murder. After recovering from their own shock. After recovering from their own shock, uh, they, you know, I guess, I'm sure that some of that was going on, but they're throwing a lot, they're trying to dramatize this with some of their commentary, uh, pretty obviously. And you, you get a picture here of the actual scene, and you and it's clear that, You've got a deeper, muddier <coughs> ditch, uh, a rather steep uh, bluff on one side where the bodies were found. Trees right up to the water line. They now had the problem of trying to get all the evidence to. And the, the question here is, you know, consider that they, they mentioned the strangeness of, this, of the way things are set up. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, you know, the strange details with the bindings, the nakedness of the boys, the clothes stuck in the water that they actually seem to suggest maybe looked somewhat ritualistic. I mean, they're sort of <laughs> they're sort of undermining their own narrative here by making this look more like what it uh, what it was because there was certainly some sort of ritual going on 
whether it was a, a, a satanic ritual or not, we could argue about that. I don't, in fact, I'm not even going to argue about it. I don't really know exactly what was going on with Damien Eccles that day, but there is, was a ritualistic aspect, conscious or unconscious, and I would suggest it was conscious, uh, where he, but, you know, it's conscious in the way that a serial killer goes does certain things in a certain compulsive way, a certain ritualistic way. It's fulfilling some deep need, and that was what was going on here. It's too strange otherwise. Particularly the bindings, which really didn't bind the boys. If they were conscious, they could easily get out of them. And it, it really makes no sense except as a form of humiliation and display. Uh, And the sticks in the, the, the sticks in the uh, sticks in the clothes, perhaps that was just an improvisation of a way to hide clothing. Uh, but it still had a strange aspect to it. It's kind of neat. They've got some uh, good footage in here of some of these things. I wish they used more authentic footage in here. Yeah, but they do have some. The detectives assumed right away that this was where the boys had been murdered. But the, the detectives assumed right away that this is where the boys have been murdered. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is where their bodies were found. Uh, it's not too wild an assumption. I understand, you know, you've got to prove that this is, you've got to prove a place where the boys were murdered. But they, they get really, really ridiculous and dishonest with this. But we'll get into this in just a minute. The things that was perplexing about the crime scene was that all three of these boys had been severely beaten. Yes, they were underwater, but there was no blood on the banks near the water, no blood in the forest. It was a detail that they thought was very odd. Just beyond. Yeah, and, the, and there, there wasn't any evident blood. There was blood in the water, though it wasn't so evident, but it was, you know, once they were aware the bodies were there, they could see blood in the water. There wasn't blood on the bank. What they did see was, uh, once they were attuned to seeing it, was uh, uh, slicked off banks where it looks like they'd been washed over. They don't explain any of that here. They don't explain that, yeah, there was actually blood. If you actually read the Miskelly Confessions and then read the Luminol Report, you're going to find that Obviously, Miskelly doesn't pinpoint things the way the Luminol report does, but generally, generally speaking, what he, what Miskelly is describing is exactly what was found with the Luminol report, which is that the boys were beaten, bound, tortured, cut up, blood, blood came out um, on the banks of this little ditch. That's what it shows. They make it sound as if there's some big mystery about the blood. There was at the time, because, you know, obviously the boys have been cut up, and where's the blood? But the blood's there. It's just not evident. Somebody went to a lot of trouble to clean up, which is another one of those arguments against some of the, uh, against Terry Hobbs, he's, I mean, our, our Mark Byers or Mr. Bo Jangles, whoever, whoever else, whatever single perp you want to blame, uh, 
outside maybe some random serial killer who happened to show up or well i'm you know there's some other possibilities there if you really want to go looking for alternative suspects some that i think are would actually be more interesting than terry hobbs but i'm not going to make any suggestions to bob ruff at this point but if you just want to go raise some suspicions and look a little deeper but uh i will say that uh this is very, very misleading about all this. They say if they, if, it'd be okay if they said, well, they, they were puzzled at the time because they were, but it was cleared up with time. It's not like it was a big puzzle forever. The crime scene. Parents of the boys and other locals have gathered, and police soon realize they must address their mounting curiosity. The families have been waiting for answers. Gary Ditchell, the lead detective, comes out from the woods and it's there in front of the cameras where he tells these parents that their sons were not missing anymore. Subsequently, we returned back to this area and um, found a shoe in the water. And then one of uh, our detectives uh, went in the water and did uh, find the young boys. Yeah, a little bit of irony here. Uh, you've got Pam Hobbs shrieking and falling, uh, Terry holding her, trying to hold her up. She's, she's really just falling out. And, and, and who can blame her? But she spoke, uh, the Bob Ruff special, she spoke about how the whole world saw this. Well, this is footage that's been was on in uh, Paradise Lost, and it's really going to get played every time. Uh, this, this this subject comes up and they do this kind of format because it, it is sh it's shocking and uh, heart-wrenching. Uh, but, you know, the irony is, is Pam seemed to be sort of <coughs> unhappy about the fact that this scene was in all these movies, but it, it's... It's in all of them, and here it is again. It became a very emotional scene when Stephen Branch's mom, Pam Hobbs, finds out that her son is dead. She actually faints. And the moors, they look as if they are in complete and utter silent shock. I say it was bound. They'd say the Moors were complete in an utter silent shock, and they don't. The Moors themselves don't show up in this this thing at all. Somewhat understandable, very understandably, they don't want to have anything to do with any of these projects. Uh, and they cut away to John Mark Byers. Somebody who didn't really know might think that that was like one of the Moors there. Uh, most people who follow the case know better. Uh, it's interesting who shows up in this uh, in this show because Todd and Todd and Dana Moore aren't in here. John Mark Byers isn't in here. Pam Hicks Hobbs or Hobbs Hicks isn't in here. Terry Hobbs isn't in, in it. Steve Branch Senior isn't in the show. Uh, some of these people showed uh, Pam uh, Pam Hicks showed up in the uh, the Bob Ruff show, and then we've got one of Pam 
Hicks sisters here, Sheila Muse, uh, talking about some things with Stevie. Um, show what Bob Ruff show had Joanne Joanne Hicks, which is another one of uh, Pam's sisters. She's apparently very close to. So. Not a lot of overlap and, and, and not a lot of input from the fact that there really no parents participated in or directly participated in this uh, ID discovery uh, show at all. From what I, I don't see, I mean, I, did I miss something? I don't think so. They didn't participate. It says something about how the parents view these projects at this point. They've been screwed over so many times in so many different ways, starting with Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky and the fraud that they perpetrated with the Paradise Lost movies. And it just continues. And, and, and you know, this is sort of where they, this stuff is doubling down on Paradise Lost in West of Memphis. It's not, and there's nothing. The only thing that's new here is how just bad, bad this is and how dumb a lot of it is. Even those movies, they're more involved with just simply leave, misdirection and leaving stuff out. This thing just really does some very, very strange things with the timeline, as we're going to get into. Anyway, Sheila Muse is talking about... Ink some water. And I just... Stevie. I remember saying, don't you dare tell me that Stevie drowned. He could swim like a fish. The eyes of the distraught town quickly turned to the police. There was immense pressure on the police to figure this case out. Who could have done something so awful? And here's a commercial. Let me try to get past this. Who could have done something so awful? Well, maybe Damien Eccles, Jason Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin. It doesn't seem that unlikely to me. And we are about to get into the next segment here. What the Post found was shocking. Well, that's not it. That, that's commercial. Okay, here we go. Small town, as you can imagine, with three. He mentions, uh, I could go back here a second. I'm not going to do it, but he mentions, uh, he referred, Ted Rollins is another journalist here who refers to Memphis as a fairly large town. I don't know how large you have to, to be to be just simply a large town, but Memphis is... A large town as far as I'm concerned it's not one of the largest in the country but it's a large town and West Memphis isn't a small town I guess but it's when I think of small town I'm thinking a small town like 5,000 10,000 people they have over 20,000 people there maybe that's a small town if you're from New York or I guess if you think Memphis is a fairly large town, then I guess that makes West Memphis a small town just because anything that doesn't have like a million people there is not a big city. But 
West Memphis is not that small, and they, as usual, they got the, they're mischaracterizing the city as we go along here. But we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll just see what they have to say. The eight-year-old being butchered. The local media was all over this story, and the gruesome facts. Police say all three boys' hands and feet were tied. The eight-year-olds were found submerged in a drainage ditch. Uh, Inspector Gary Gitchell says the boys were beaten to death. Okay, Gary Gitchell was telling the police, uh, telling the media that the boys were beaten to death. Which is true enough, by the way. I mean, they were beaten to the point that they would have died. He didn't have, at that point, he didn't have autopsy details. And he spent he, he spent weeks wait, trying to get de autopsy details from the... Uh, Medical examiner was very frustrated with him. You can find his letters on the Callahan CallahanMySite.com if you're interested. Uh, but the, as far as the media is concerned, at this point, the boys were beat, beaten to death. So anybody who has any knowledge about them being cut up, more, one being boys being cut up more than the others, or anything like that, which Jesse Miskellian. Damien Eccles had, then it really raises a question. How do you how do those two guys know what everybody else didn't know? Well, Damien Eccles at trial said he read it in the newspaper. Well, they proved once among the many lies that were proved about Damien's whole case at trial was that he didn't read it in the newspaper because the information never appeared in the newspapers. So Damien flat out lied about what he, where he got his information on May 9th. And we'll get into that timeline here in just a bit. But anyway, at this point, early on. Gary Gitchell is telling Memphis Channel 3 that they're, uh, oh, they're I don't know which channel it is. I was reading this wrong. Uh, hey, it, Gary Gitchell at this point is telling the local media that uh, the boys were beaten to death. Uh, People find out what really happened, and they are angry. Just, they're, they're just getting worse and worse every time you turn around. You know, if it ain't your kid. Uh, this guy, Tim Cotton, they quote him. He was involved in the search. He became a, one of these people they, they took a look at more closely because somebody thought he looked suspicious. He uh, later was uh, uh, in, in jail with uh, L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., where L.G. said some things to him that sounded suspicious and um, really sounded sort of like a confession. And then... Uh, for some reason, the police, whenever they get around to questioning LG, they just sort of take his word for it that Tim Cotton's not telling the truth. I don't know why they believed LG then when they never believed him before, but they believed him then. Is somebody getting killed or shot? The mood in West Memphis was alarmed. There was a killer out there. According to the coroner, at least two of the three boys had been possibly sexually assaulted. And that made it all the more horrible, all the more tragic. It looks like a ghost town. Now, uh, the information about the 
boys being possibly sexually assaulted. That was not public knowledge. It might have been speculated upon in the public. I'm sure it was, but it was not public knowledge that the boys had signs of sexual uh, sexual assault. And some of those signs are uh, the there were injuries to the ears that indicated that they were that was part of what was going that part of a means of control. Uh, involving sex, grabbing them by the ears. Uh, there were in, unexplained injuries to the ears. Not that they weren't injured everywhere anyway, but, the, the, you know, they, the ears appeared to have been grabbed and twisted. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember what I was going to say. Uh, oh, uh, Stevie Branch's penis had some strange sort of marks on it, little, not big wounds, but little wounds as if it had been, it had been abused basically, which would be totally congruent with Jesse Miskelly describing Damien Eccles playing with the little boy's penis as he's lying there unconscious. As sickening as that is, that's seems to have been what went on that day. not let their kids go outside. Dan Stidham, and they quote Dan Stidham about what life was like in West Memphis at the time. He wasn't living in West Memphis. He doesn't know what life was like then. I guess they just got to pull in, you know, a so-called expert. And uh, so let's let's bring on Stidham to talk about life in West Memphis when he didn't live there. Now tune in to the battle of it's, it's a shock to the neighborhood. It's a shock to the parents. You're not letting your kid have your son. No. We have a fenced in yard when he stays there. If I think about it when I'm playing, it keeps me from enjoying myself. Well, it's scary. I don't like to go that far from home anymore. As fear in Western. You know, uh, just these quotes from these little children, quite poignant. You know, it had a huge effect on the community. And I, I think they did that. It shows a a pretty good job of that. Not that ID Discovery came up with that footage, or I guess they rediscovered it. But uh, the what they don't talk about, what they're not talking. These people that they're talking to aren't saying the devil did it, the Satanists did it. We know it was a you know all the Satanists we've got around here. We know they did it. They're really not talking about satanic panic up to this point, though. They're going to get into it in just a second. That just grows. So does the burden of solving the crime. The pressure on the police was very intense. They were looking at a lot of people. There was some suspicion that it might have been a, an ex-military person because they were tied like POWs. Police also collected a list of people who were known to have tortured animals. There were many things followed up. There were many things followed up. Uh, from That's moral Everett. And she's describing how they looked at ex-military police. They looked at people who were torturing animals. Hello, Damien Eccles, animal torturer. Uh, I guess you weren't on the official list, though, for that. And uh, But she's saying, you know, instead of this laser-like focus that apparently went to, immediately went to Damien Eccles, they were looking at a lot of people. That is... Marl Everett, who is the go-to person for people with 
even though she wrote a totally bogus book about pinpointing, pointing John Mark Byers as the as a viable alternative suspect, even though he's obviously not one, never was a viable alternative suspect. And that, you know, I, I understand how he got into the sights of the investigation with the, uh, the, the, the knife, the Kershaw knife that he gave to the Paradise Lost film, film uh, crew member that had blood in it, it raised some questions, but ultimately... If you just look at his, what his wife has to say, what his son, his stepson has to say, what he has to say, all the police, all the calls to the police and the sheriff's department, and every, he 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 wasn't involved in the, the killing. He has an alibi. Terry Hobbs has an alibi too. It's not as good as John Mark Byers, but it's a pretty good alibi, and it's a lot better than any of the multiple failed alibis from any of the West Memphis Three, who all have had multiple two or three alibis that they've thrown out there, and they and none of them hold up under scrutiny. But investigators are soon reminded of a previous incident that may point to a viable suspect. Just hours after the boys were discovered dead, at the Bojangles. The manager notifies the police and said, hey, there were these murders. We had this bloody, muddy man in the restaurant. There's some blood still on. Okay, now, they already mentioned the Bojangles incident. There was, uh, they talk about it like it was this amazing case of this blood, like he's bleeding all over the place. Well, he was bleeding, and, and you know, he smeared some blood there. He smeared some some of his, he smeared some crap there. He smeared some blood in the women's restroom. Very not too long after uh, the, the the murders, it would about be about the time that uh, Regina Meek was over at Mark Byers' house. It was a little bit later than that, but eight thirty or so. He, he he was over at Bojangles, and he wouldn't leave. And the Mar Marty King called the police department on him and said, "You know, you need to get out of here." And the guy. Took his time, but he find, he didn't leave immediately. But he did finally leave and went off into the woods. And Regina Meek pulled up. She did get out of her car. She kind of looked around to see. You know, she didn't go into the restaurant because he was gone. Uh, there wasn't any obvious crime scene there except the, the crime of smearing the bathroom with uh, blood and crap and what was she going to do about that uh, she didn't know there was a murder involved murder uh, there were a, a triple murder that had just occurred and no reason to think so and this guy just sort of wanders off into the woods behind Bo Jangles and as far as we know and she got out of her car looked around couldn't find him anywhere uh, figures probably rightly well he's gone and and what's she going to charge him with except you know vagrancy uh, maybe some sort of vandalism charge you know so she moved on and you can falter for that but the truth is she already had a report three boys were missing and that was and she had other calls on that she was obliged to answer 
and she couldn't spend all night looking for Mr. Bojangles when she had other calls that were higher priority. And that's just the way it is. You know, if nothing else had been going on except Mr. Bojangles that evening, which, which would be unlikely in a place like West Memphis. It's not a quiet little bucolic town. It's not Mayberry. It's a rough place with a lot of minor crime going on all the time. I spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, I didn't live there, but I worked there for four years covering, covering crimes to some extent and uh, certainly hearing about a lot of it and seeing just, you know, the there with the foot traffic, seeing the homeless people, seeing the gangbangers hanging out on the street corner. That's the kind of place it is. It's not Mayberry RFD. Walls. And we've got the sunglasses that he left, and y'all might want to come down and check that. Detective Ridge then went to Bojangles and collected those samples. Days later, police hear him. It's, you know, this this is minor, but the sort of thing they show West Memphis Police Department. And this, this is a former bank that's now the... Uh, Police Department headquarters. That's not where the police department was in 1993. It was at that time. It was in the old courthouse down there. About a new individual with a curious connection to the murdered kids. And you know, and 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 they bring in Mr. Bojangles. Then they're going to bring in this, uh, this the case of Chris Morgan. Uh, it's just a curious emphasis. We're talking about these crimes investigation. By the time they talked to Chris Morgan, Damien Eccles was already a prime suspect, and we'll get into that in a bit. But anyway, Chris Morgan, he was an ice cream man. He goes out to California, and he uh, that some for some reason this raised suspicions with the families. Apparently, he had some sort of conflict with his families, which might explain why he went out to California. <coughs> you think? Anyway, um, I would just uh, go on and fast forward through the Chris Morgan thing because it really is a big nothing. Except there's one part of it I'm interested in. So let me see. Let me see if I can find it. Here he's talking in here. They asked him about what he was doing the night of the murders. He says he was jumping off a cliff into the Mississippi River far from the scene of this crime. And then he went to a nightclub for the evening. And, you know, uh, I think this is Diane Diamond here. It, she makes it look, she looks very skeptical about him jumping off a cliff into the Mississippi River and then going to a nightclub. That's probably what he was doing, though. It's not very smart jumping off cliffs into the Mississippi River. If everything you're telling me lines up, then you know what? You know what, Chris? I'm an exonerator. Okay? If not, I have a responsibility to tell the truth. The intensity of the interview, however, seems to rattle the suspect. At one point, Chris Morgan becomes very upset and puts a tissue over the lens of the camera like he doesn't want to say anymore. But then he blurts out something very significant. 
she says he blurts out something very significant. The fact is it wasn't very significant. And then he says, me and my family had some problems. And he was there for, oh, it was, it, this was the long interview that really people should be upset about. And it was those darn rednecks in uh, Oceanside, California, you know, those bumbling, cousin-marrying, toothless, tobacco-chewing, uh, backward-thinking cops in California that did this to this poor child. They, but they did interview him for a very long time, I think 16, 17 hours. It really, that really is too much. That's, that's over the top. They had a problem. They told me about it. They put me on the AA. They called me an alcohol and a drug addict. They said because I was trans. When pressed on his history of substance abuse, Morgan then makes a stunning statement. Well, he, he was mad because they sent him to the AA. But... He says, he says, maybe it's possible. Maybe that's possible. He said, do you, do you think I did this in a blackout? He said, maybe that's possible. Uh, so now the cops go, wow, we got a confession. We got the guy. This may have broken the case. Beth, Beth Karras is sort of overstating it. It wasn't much of a confession. May have broken then, the case. You like turned on a dime. Is it possible? You could, you could have done it? No. No, possible at all. And he says it's not possible. I've never heard him They're not quite sure what to do with Morgan at this point. They do take urine and blood samples. And, you know, why this focus on him? They're spending more time with Chris Morgan, really, than they're, than they're going to spend, in some ways, with Damian Eccles. But... The police were running the out of obvious suspects. No, they weren't. A... No, they weren't. They had an obvious suspect, and they had an obvious suspect on May 9th. The obvious suspect on May 9th was the guy who was seen walking away from the crime scene in muddy clothes. The obvious suspect was the guy who gave these very, what turned out to be very incriminating and very suspicious turned out to be very incriminating answers to police questionnaire based on an FBI checklist. The obvious suspect was a guy who failed polygraph. The obvious suspect was a guy who uh, demonstrated special knowledge of the crime in his interview with, with police. And the obvious suspect was a guy who kept changing his, even in the few times they talked to him, and it was just days after the crime, was changing up his alibi right and left. That's the obvious suspect that they they say they didn't have, but they already did. We'll go on with this. Another way of looking at the evidence. And so they kind of circle back to the crime scene. The more police. I don't know where she gets this thing about they circle back to the crime scene. I think they continued to look at the crime scene. They thought pretty early on because of what they admit are strange ritualistic aspects to the crime scene. Maybe there was some significance to that. Maybe there was some occult influence. Now, I will say, they get into Jerry Driver here. Jerry Driver, very early on, said something about, uh, it looks like Steve Jones said something. They did go talk to Damien Eccles. Jerry Driver was also 
making noise about this. And according to Jerry Driver, they really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to him. They didn't take him that seriously. In other words, they didn't latch on to Damian Eccles. Oh, this is the kid we're going to get because he's a Satanist. They did the exact opposite. They were kind of skeptical because they thought, well, okay, we know this. We know this guy. You know, he's sort of like when you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We know this guy's interested in uh, occult crime. He's got this uh, occultist that uh, is feeding him all this information. Basically, a bunch of bull. Probably not a bunch of bull. There's probably some truth mixed in with the bull. Damien Eccles is feeding these wild stories to Jerry Driver to get his attention. He liked getting the attention. He liked being the expert on occultism in Crittenden County. And what happened was uh, they had this kind of relationship going on where uh, Damien Eccles was feeding Jerry Driver's occult obsession. Now, Eccles may explain that now as, well, he was obsessed with me and he did this and that. Well, you know, some of this was because... Uh, some of that was because of Eccles manipulating him, getting his attention, uh, showing off as he's prone to do. We're going to go into this a little bit more. Focus on these elements, the stranger it all seems. The fact that the boys weren't found naked, they were physically stuck into the mud. And this club... They were physically stuck into the mud, yet while they're physically stuck into the mud, the turtles who don't do this were supposed to dive down there at night and feast upon them. Okay, moral ever. Uh, they're acknowledging here that, that the crime was strange. They don't use the term ritualistic, but not so far anyway, but it's obvious it was a, had a ritualistic aspect to it. They're, they're not doing anything but just acknowledging the reality of what's in front of them. Something was physically stuck with sticks, and they could not find any significant amount of blood at the scene. They could not find any significant amount of blood at the scene. However, when they did the luminol testing a few weeks later, they found blood at the scene. Maybe not a significant, they found it significant enough to account for the presence of the blood. Wasn't a huge amount of blood left. It had been there, for, it had rained in the meantime. It was very, uh, uh, almost semi-tropical atmosphere going on in those woods. Uh, you know, speaking of predators, if there were a pool of blood around, maybe a possum or some, or a raccoon would get up there and I don't know if they do that, but it doesn't, I think they probably do. Uh, there, there are little predators like that who, that would have maybe if there were, was any blood laying around that might well have gotten into that. Um, the big, the big lie here is that they're, again, they're perpetuating this idea. There's no blood there. There was blood there. Uh, I want to say again, once again, that while the boys being nude has all sorts of possible meanings, uh, it does suggest a sexual component to the crime, which is definitely there. But there's also occult significance to nudity. Uh, speaking of Wicca, the ceremonies are supposed to be practiced in the nude. There is binding involved with Wicca. It's not the same binding as, as in with these boys, but they're, they they do, they use 
ropes and uh, so forth to uh, handle their initiates in certain ways. So the idea that it's somehow strange or foreign to the occult world to have nude, nude bound bodies is absurd. The killings were so awful that you almost could reflexively say it was a monster. And then... Oh, it was a monster. We know their names. There's a three-headed monster. Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly. Police realized the fact that it was a full moon on the night of the murder. It looked like ritual murder. They did look like ritual murder. I don't know when they. I don't know when they came to the conclusion about the full moon, but the full moon does have significance. The fact that it was that May fifth is actually uh, a date that's connected with uh, uh, Old Beltane, which is a traditional pagan holiday associated with with uh, Wiccans. Uh, Beltane is can also be on May first, but Old Beltane is actually on May fifth because of some celestial convergence that goes on that I don't, I can't explain off the top of my head. I can go find it, but go look it up. So it, it's a date with some significance. Full moon is a date with a great deal of significance. Those particular, that particular date and time was, has a great deal of significance. Uh, they, the, the pagans, at least the modern pagans, tend to tie their celebrations to full moons. Now, get into this, they get into a whole bunch of headlines that apparently have nothing to do with the case. If they do, it's not really clear where they're getting these headlines, or if they just made them up in the back room and slapped them up here on the screen. But anyway, black magic cast spells over ruthless teens, satanic. Satanic shadows and gruesome murders. Murder, I don't know. Twice, as recently a murder. Uh, Devil Madness Sacrifice. Well, that one looks, the cutoff there looks like maybe that was in, may have a West Memphis date. It's just a hot topic throughout America. There was a lot of discussion in the early 1990s of Called the idea of satanic ritual murders. Nocturnal Howls at Town's Edge. Demon Darling's Death Adventure. This sounds like stuff from the tabloids. Which I, I like the tabloids, but, let's, but they are what they are. And a lot of law enforcement people had become very concerned that this was happening. So the West Memphis... Okay. Now, let's, let's be clear. Marl Everett absolutely dismissed, absolutely dismisses the idea of the whole idea that there could be a cult crime because... In her rational worldview, that sort of thing just simply doesn't exist. It's too irrational to be a part of her worldview. So, you know, if, if somebody commits an occult crime, it, it's just not possible. Couldn't happen. People were more rational than that. No, they're not. <coughs> now they say... So the West Memphis Police consultant expert on the occult. Now, the West Memphis Police uh, are, I think Jerry Driver had been in contact with, with uh, 
Dale Griffiths, and he'd been in contact with some other cult experts the year before. They'd find they found some signs that there was some occult activity going on in the community. Uh, they assumed it was kids doing it, but they never caught anybody. And but you know what the West Memphis police didn't do was, oh, we're stymied for a suspect. Let's bring in Dale Griffiths. And that's certainly how it's presented here. So the West Memphis police consult an expert on the occult. Police consult an expert on the occult. My name is Dale Griffiths. I was a policeman for 26 years. I obtained a PhD and I wrote my dissertation on mind control cults all kinds of different groups were starting to bud and come up. We, in law enforcement, knew little about them. In West Memphis, there were certain things relevant to possibility of occultism being a motive. For example, full moons at times are part of a cultic belief system. At the crime scene, there wasn't any blood. Okay, we get this again. There wasn't, at the crime scene, there wasn't any blood. Beth Karras really should clarify this. There was blood at the crime scene. It just wasn't obvious. But they they come back to this yet again, and then this gets way off the wall here. And this was a pretty horrific scene. Where's the blood? They were bound and then submerged in water. Their clothing was sort of driven into the muck of the creek with a stick. I mean, it all seemed to indicate a satanic nature. The police drew up a list of suspects, and they believe it all seemed to indicate a satanic nature. And then, then Marl Everett says they drew up a list of suspects, and it makes this presents it in such a way that it sounds like they drew up. Uh, they talked to Dale Griffiths. They couldn't find any blood. Then they drew up a list of suspects. No, that's not what happened. No, they did have they did have some list of potential suspects. People really, they weren't suspects. They were people that they felt they might know something about the occult, particularly might know something about uh, uh, that they were aware. Uh, there were some kids around there that they were aware were dabbling in the occult, and Eccles was one of them. There's, there's not any question about that, except he wasn't really a dabbler, but let's leave that aside. Uh, but what didn't happen was that they consulted with Dale Griffiths and then drew up a list of potential suspects based on the occult because they thought about the full moon and then focused in on on uh, Damien Eccles, who they've got some weird-looking model. Sort of, he looks kind of like a, not a very good male model, but some sort of male model strolling around uh, the tree-lined streets of Lakeshore Estates. Which is a joke. He, they got a nice broad sidewalk there. There may be some nice broad sidewalks in West Memphis, but Damien Eccles wasn't strolling up and down those, the, wherever that is, he wasn't strolling up and down those streets. You've got a young 18-year-old guy in West Memphis, and Damien Eccles was probably the weirdest kid they knew, probably the one most likely involved in satanic stuff. So they began to focus on him. Moral Everett is totally mischaracterizing this. That is not what happened. Damien 
Eccles lives in a trailer park in West Memphis. He's a high school dropout, and he had been on the radar of police for more than a year. He was one of these guys. Now, he'd been on the radar, say he's been on the radar police for more than a year. Well, there were some things that went on a year before where he they'd become aware of him, but as far as uh, somebody who was significant in West Memphis, no. Uh, he did live in West Memphis. He had not been living in West Memphis that long. Been a couple of months. His parents had moved back from Oregon, and they moved into a trailer park over in West Memphis, off Broadway, oh, down on the uh, east side of town. Really rough. <laughs> really, I'm sure it was. I I don't know what it was like in '93, though I. I just wasn't over there in 93. I was over there in the eighties and I was over there and, you know, many years later and I sometimes, you know, actually I went over there looking for a stolen car sometime in the 1990s and we drove all around that part of West Memphis, uh, that Eastern part. Now I'm not talking about Damien's house or street, but just the general area. And it was, it was rough and scary back then. Back in the early 90s, it had the dyed hair, jet black. Eccles' hair isn't dyed. It's not dyed jet black. It's just black. He's got black hair. The whole family's got black hair. He even had painted his nails. And in a small Christian religious town like West Memphis, Damien Eccles, not only... He's talking about a small Christian religious town like West Memphis. West Memphis is not a small Christian religious town. It just isn't. The main source of revenue for the town, well, you know, they get a lot of revenue coming in from the tax base. Of Obviously, they've got homes there. They've got that coming in. But as far as the big business there, the big one big business there is a casino. Back then, it was a, a Greyhound Park. But gambling and vice have been the mainstays of the Memphis, West Memphis economy from the very first days that, that the city was ever came into existence. It was a place where people left. They went across the river to West Memphis from Memphis because there were things going on in West Memphis that were that were uh, strictly enforced against in Memphis, such as gambling, cockfighting, dog races, drinking, prostitution, and others, you know, and then they had you know, they had a lot of blues clubs. They had a lot of stuff going on, uh, you know, fairly rough places over in West Memphis. Um, and there were some of that going on in some of that going on in Memphis, but not so much. And then some of it was going on in some places down in DeSoto County, south of Memphis, but not as much. So the idea that what and, and the average church membership in West Memphis is below the national average. And I'm not saying that there aren't sincere religious people in West Memphis. I'm not saying that there aren't churches. There's a lot of churches. A lot of churches just about everywhere around the country. Churches aren't hard to find in any community that I'm aware of. And, you know, they're, and they're, they're sincerely good, sincere religious people are easy to find, are not that hard to find in any community. And there were certainly some of those in West Memphis. Uh, some of the preachers were somewhat outspoken 
and so they appear on in the media. But their church, you know, <laughs> not everybody in town was going to that preacher's church. And the idea that Damien did stand out because he dressed in black and he did his best to draw attention to himself. Uh, frankly, if you're walking around with a black trench coat in August heat, and you know he did, and they show him this this weird-looking guy here with the, this this uh, ceremonial staff. Well, you know he he apparently he did have one of those too. So if you're walking around with a black trench coat and a ceremonial staff. You might draw draw a few looks any place short of, say, San Francisco. So you know he was sort of known in that respect, but he was not some sort of community celebrity or something like that. Stood out. He scared people. My name is Michelle Eccles, and I am the sister of Damian Eccles. No matter how cool or how hot it was outside, Damien wore his long black trench coat. And I believe people perceive that to be odd. I believe that Michelle, I'm not going to say anything else about Michelle, but uh, personal about Michelle, but I, I did talk to her on the phone once. She was actually quite nice, and I think she's a probably fairly intelligent. The family seems to have some intelligence. Uh, the... People perceive that to be odd. Yeah, it was odd. Walking around in a trench coat, black trench coat in August heat, it's odd. Now, the unbelievable stuff, really off-the-wall stuff's about to come up from another party here. What's going on? But despite his dark appearance, Damien's mother describes him as a normal teenager. Damien's mother describes him as a normal teenager. She... Um, had him, you know, number one, Damien, by the, at the time of this uh, crime was committed, he was on Social Security disability. And when he filed for Social Security disability, he listed some mental illnesses for uh, manic, de manic depressive, depressive, but he also listed himself as homicidal and suicidal. He listed himself as sociopathic. And, he, and then he got fast-tracked for some Social Security disability. So he was he just turned 18 in that December. And by the time he was 18 and a half, he was already on Social Security disability for being too mentally disabled to work, which is not a normal teenager. Let's preface this. They don't even explain this <coughs> in any real depth here. It's, very mis it's going to be very misleading. But what happens? is May 1992, he's breaking, he's forced, he gets arrested for running off with his girlfriend, Deanna Holcomb. Uh, he threatens to kill himself, so he gets sent to Charter Lakeside, or, or Charter Hospital in uh, Little Rock. Uh, get mostly diagnosed, you know, read, the, go to Exhibit 500 and read the descriptions there. It's obviously very mentally disturbed. They let him out though because his parents say, "Well, we're going to take we're going to take him to Oregon with us." And you know, it's not. It seems like they took some time getting to Oregon. I mean, they let him out in June. He's still around in July. 
but apparently by July or August, late July, August or so, he's in Oregon. Spends a couple of weeks at, with, with his family in Oregon. There's apparently a lot of conflict going on. Uh, Damien's actually having to hold down a job for a change. He's not happy about that. Uh, his father's mad because he's spending money on purchasing knives. Uh, they get into an argument. Damien threats to, threatens to cut his mother's throat, which is kind of arguable about whether that's normal teenage behavior, but I would say it's abnormal. Uh, he's threatened to eat his father with a spoon, which is extremely abnormal teenage behavior. And he's gone to, makes his second trip to a mental hospital with no input from Jerry Driver or the West Memphis police or anybody else. They don't keep him very long, uh, but when they release him, the parents say, we don't want him here. We're scared. We've got a younger child at home. We don't want, we got younger children at home. We consider him to be dangerous. We want him out of here. So they send him on a bus back to West Memphis. He gets back to West Memphis. He's violated his probation by coming back, like it or not. So he gets sent to a juvenile detention center. While there, he drinks the blood of another kid. He's witnessed doing this. He's sent off to charter again. And, you know, once again, they're detailing all this strange stuff going on with Damien Eccles with, you know, his, he's communing with spirits. He freaks out. That he, whether he means to do this or not, whether he, I mean, there was a, a, a psychiatrist in, uh, in Oregon who thought that Damien, this might all be just an act that Damien was putting on for uh, attention. And I, I, honestly, it seems like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty reasonable in a lot of ways because he does seem to be able to turn the craziness on and off as it suits him. But... He uh, described, you know, communing with various spirits. When he came back from Oregon, he said he was uh, being followed by a witch. He said he was his body was occupied by the spirit of a dead woman. Uh, he mentioned some sort of other spirit named Rosie that he was communing with regularly. He describes himself uh, in vampire terms. Says he drinks blood uh, as, as a transmission of power. This, this is in September before, this is September 1992. None of this is normal teenage behavior. But this is very typical of Pam. Uh, she was Eccles, then she was H uh, Hutchison again when she'd been earlier, when she remarried uh, Eddie Hutchison. And then she now is Pam Metcalf in very, obviously very poor health. But... Uh, this is very typical of her where she complained about him. The family was concerned. Family put him in. Part of the concern with him being in mental institutions was the family being concerned about his involvement in the occult and witchcraft and, and Satanism. But now she's saying, oh, he's just a normal kid. This is very typical of the family dynamic, which, again, explains some of the problems with Damien Eccles. There's a very, some very odd stuff going on here with this family, to put it mildly. My name's Pamela Metcalf, and I am Damien Eccles' mother. Damien liked to wear black clothes, black boots. He had a girl tell him one time that it made him look very sexy, and I honestly feel like that's the reason. Damien started dressing in all black all the time. If 
the time had been now, all the strange haircuts and the way that people dressed, I mean, would have fit right in. Most of the time, he was really good child. He liked alien movies. He did particularly was his favorite one. He was really intrigued by the Catholic religion. And then he started becoming interested in other religions. And he was looking into Wicca. One of the main things in the Wicca religion is that you don't hurt anyone. But most of the people in West Memphis did believe that Damien was part of a satanic cult. Over a year prior to... One reason... Uh... You know, you can see the level of denial going on with this lady uh, are just plain misinformation. One reason that uh, people West Memphis, the idea that people in, most of the people in West Memphis didn't think anything about Damien Eccles one way or the other. Most of them didn't really know him. He was not, he went to Marion schools. He was better known there. Uh, family lived quite a bit of the time, or they lived in uh, Lakeshore Estates, which is neither West Memphis nor Marion, but between, Trail Park between those two towns. Uh, he hadn't lived in West Memphis that long. He was very familiar with the area. It's not a large area. He was quite familiar with the area. He walked through the woods where the boys were killed, according to his own testimony, several times a week. And he was seen in those woods not too long before the killings. Jesse Miskelly also describes Eccles as stalking boys at that time. So, but she she's going to minimize his involvement and the idea that Wicca suggests, you know, you don't kill anyone. Well, the Church of Satan also suggests you don't, that it's very much against personal violence on that level. However, I think, my understanding is correct, but... They just because that's the official position doesn't mean that somebody can't do that. They take exception to that. There's no, you know, Eccles is pretty dismissive of Wicca now, and his girlfriend Damien, Deanna Holcomb, his ex girlfriend Deanna Holcomb, described him as being involved in black magic, which is not Wicca. But isn't necessarily Satanism. So, you know, if he wants to say he was not a Satanist, um, you know, okay. Were you communing with demons? I mean, you said you, were, you said you were a demonologist, and he did make some intimations. He was a Satanist to his kids at school, you know, son of Satan, that sort of thing. Uh, but were you, uh, you know, were you um, uh, calling up demons to have them do your bidding? not really that much different than the angels he calls, he describes having doing his bidding today. Uh, and we might suggest that all this, of course, exists in his own head, but some angels are just demons in disguise. If you, if, if you go in, if you believe in, believe in that, I'm not going to get into my own personal beliefs, but if you believe in that sort of thing, part of the deal is is sometimes the angels are actually demons. And what what is required is discernment. And we'll go on a little bit longer with this. To the murders, Damien was arrested for breaking and entering into an abandoned house trailer. 
The incident thrusts him onto the caseload of Chief Juvenile Probation Officer Jerry Driver. Jerry Driver was one of the people who very strongly believed that there was satanic activity in the area, and he heard that Damien had a lot of trouble, psychiatric troubles. At one point, Damien Eccles was... He heard that Damien had a lot of tr psychiatric troubles. Well, you know, Damien did have a lot of psychiatric troubles. It's the way, you know, uh, often the way it's presented as if, well, Jerry, Jerry Driver heard all this, and, and somebody listening to this will go, well, is that true, or did he just hear it? Well, no, it, he did have psychiatric problems. And then Ted Rowlands is going to give a totally, totally off-the-wall description of what was going on here sent to a juvenile detention sucked the blood of another individual's arm. Also, at that point, it was reported that Damien had threatened to kill his father. Also, at that point, it was reported, it was reported, you know, this distancing again, Damien had threatened to kill his father. No, Damien threatened to kill his father in Oregon. He, his father had nothing to do with the incident in Jonesboro where he was sent to uh, charter for the second time. It's in just a matter of months. Um. When Driver learns of Eccles' violent past and penchant for black magic, he decides to probe the teenager's life. When Driver learns of Eccles, uh, he decides to probe the teenager's life after learning of his violent past and his penchant for black magic. Might mention that Eccles was also involved in trying to tear out the eyes at school, tear out the eyes of uh, a romantic rival named Shane Divilbiss by clawing his eyes out with his inch and a half long vampire fingernails. Let's see how they characterize the driver obsession here. Jerry Driver was able to go to Damien's house and confiscated a lot. He says, <laughs> this, the timeline here is so strange. They're talking about this in terms of the murder investigation. They throw Jerry Driver into it, and then they say Jerry Driver was able to go to Damien's house and confiscate his occult, his occult stuff. No, that was from uh, uh, almost a year before whenever he was under probation. You know, it's, it, Jerry Driver didn't go over there when the, uh, the investigation was uh, and the murder was underway. And the, the way it's presented here it certainly looks that way, that he went in there and just confiscated Damien's notebooks. That's not what happened. Other Damien's writings and drawings. There was some writing in code that he didn't know what that meant. I think at that time he found a book that Damien had gotten from the library about witchcraft, going back to the early days of Puritanism in the country. They seized a series of notebooks, and inside these notebooks there were pentagrams, drawings of a half goat, half human, things that made them even more suspicious of this teenager. To Jerry. Now, when they, something, I mean, some of the stuff that they'd be talking about would be, you know, they did confiscate things after the arrest, and appropriately so. If you arrest somebody for a triple murder, you're going to go to their house and you're going to confiscate items. But they didn't go over there and confiscate stuff from, from Damien Eccles' house 
before the between the murders and the arrest. It just didn't happen, but they present it that way. Driver, Damon Eccles stands out in the community. He already had a troubled past and he hadn't had a brush with the law already. As soon as he heard about the triple murders, Jerry Driver alerted the West Memphis police about Damien Eccles. Soon, they attempt to fit Damien's social network into a theory of the crime. Soon, they attempt to fit Damien's social network into a theory of the crime. Again, this is sort of, uh, you know, they, they had a list of people to look at. So it's sort of true. But the thing is, is by the time, by, by, by May 9th, less than a week after the crimes, Eccles had already positioned himself as really a, a prime suspect, partially because he'd been seen walking away from the scene of the crime in muddy clothes, which this documentary, just like Paradise Lost, doesn't even mention. There was an idea among the police that it would have been very hard for one killer to kill all three kids. Then once West Memphis police began to look closely at Damien, they also started looking at Damien's best friend, who was Jason Baldwin. Jason also lived in a trailer park, and they were both kind of treated as outcasts. My name is Jason Baldwin. I remember meeting Damien. He lived in this. I'm not going to hang around here, listen to Jason and his, tell his same old story that he's told a zillion times about meeting Damien. And, and everything. They act like they've got a scoop here with, with But they would come to Damien's Baldwin. house several times and have Damien's parents take him to the police station and question him. Eccles went to the police station they went by Damien's house on. Uh, they went by Damien's house on May seventh. Very informal kind of bit, uh, not informal, but you know, very, you know, more of a probing sort of thing. They, they, they didn't take do extensive notes on the visit. They didn't ask him a lot of questions apparently, and they left. Uh, they were checking out a lot of people. The police. This is the police. They came by Jason Baldwin's. Jason Baldwin alludes to them coming by his house. That Domini, who's also not in this and not mentioned anywhere, I don't think. The fact that Baldwin, I mean uh, Eccles, had this pregnant sixteen-year-old pregnant girlfriend is just not simply mentioned in here at all. And it isn't. It's at least a significant part of the story in the sense that it says something about who he is and what this, what could have been going on here with this. Uh, Eccles was feeling a lot of pressure, and Jason Baldwin was feeling a lot of pressure at home. And uh, Miss Kelly always had a lot of pressure at home because it was a difficult home life, apparently. So, they're really just misexplained. Interrogation. Eccles confirms investigators' darkest oh, fears. I was going to say, they talked to him on. <laughs> May 7th, they, they go over to Baldwin's house on May 8th. They talk to Eccles on May 9th. He fails polygraph, which they don't mention. 
He refuses to talk to police after failing the polygraph, which they don't mention. But up to that point, he'd given investigators some very solid sorts of information, things like one boy was cut up more than the others that indicated he knew something about the crime. And then the, the answers to the police questionnaires, which they're about to get into, and, and they frame it as, you know, they, they don't mention that uh, Eccles thought that the killer would enjoy hearing the boys scream, uh, that the killing would make him happy. See what else he says here. Everything about Damien Eccles, his attitude, his work, <coughs> everything made the police think this is the guy. It wasn't just this is the guy because of the attitude. It wasn't just the guy because of the attitude. It was also this is the guy because we have information indicating that maybe, just maybe, he was actually involved in the killing. I know I'm, this is a long episode. I hope it's not going to be too long. And I may cut it off here very soon, just for the purposes of, okay. I think I made my point that this are is interviewing teenager Damien Eccles. At this point, they don't give up. The police think that. At this point, the police think it's most most likely a satanic killing. No, they really didn't know what it was. They thought it they thought it might be one. They had not. They you know they really didn't know. They were it was still when they talked to Eccles. It was still very early in the investigation. And guess who was the first person that said that that somebody would be involved, who would be responsible for this? Satanist. Uh, they get into this a little bit, but why do you think, why do you think that this occurred? Eccles had two things, revenge, which is interesting, and it raises some questions. Was he, there was, was there some sort of a revenge element in all this that's simply not been revealed? It's an interesting question. I don't have an answer to that, and anything I would say would be purely speculative on that. But if it was revenge, it would probably have been revenge. If he was going to be interacting with anybody, it probably would have been Mark Byers, but I'm not, I'm not even going to, you know, to talk about it much more than that as speculation, except Mark Byers has, is an acknowledged, uh, was an acknowledged drug dealer. So if Eccles was buying drugs, his friends were buying drugs. Um, and he gives very, conflicting answers about he's always saying he's not taking drugs at the time but when you follow the timeline he's, it seems like he's always taking drugs he stopped taking drugs two weeks ago or whatever well you know then two weeks later I ask him the same thing well I stopped taking drugs two weeks ago uh, Dom, uh, Deanna said that he was involved in drugs and she would know And the other thing he said, he says it's a thrill kill, revenge, and you know there's definitely a thrill kill aspect to this. There's definitely, if you listen, 
listen to the Vescelli confessions. This definitely sounds like a, a case of bullying, bullying, drunken bullying by teenagers that got out of control. That's kind of hard to argue that it's not that there's not that element there. Uh, was that all there was to it? I I, I tend to think not, but uh, ultimately it doesn't make a lot of difference if if the actual motive is not central to making the case and it's not. Uh, we know that they had talked about going and beating up some boys and was whether this was for revenge, for fun, for a thrill kill. Nah, you can, it's kind of hard to know. Maybe they didn't know themselves until they actually got into it. It's most likely a satanic killing. And Damien probably did it. The police are looking for anything that will tie Damien Eccles to that crime scene. And so he's taking copious notes about this. When Damien Eccles comes in for questioning, Brian Rich notices that on Damien's knuckles he has written the word evil. He also... I gotta say, those are the cheesiest looking knuckle tattoos I've ever seen. ...notices that he's wearing a pentagram necklace. Damien tells Detective Ridge that the pentagram is a symbol of his Wicca religion and that he's a member of a white witch So is he an occultist or not? Yeah, he is. I don't know why this is questionable, and I don't know why people like Marl Everett act like it's totally irrelevant. His occultic beliefs, if he is a viable suspect... If they, if they pervade, pervade every aspect of his life and inform his perspective on, on everything he does, why wouldn't those beliefs have some impact, some effect on the killing of three little boys, particularly a killing that appears, even according to this, hey, this story here, this, this show here. And it's interesting, you know, Eccles still comes off as being a weird, creepy guy here, uh, the crimes comes off as being strange and not just uh, a case of somebody killing somebody and just trying to cover it up. There's it's too there's too many weird aspects to it. Ask Damien about the evening of May fifth, and Damien denied that he had any involvement in the murders. He said he was nowhere near Robin Hood Hills. Damien told Detective Ridge that that he. Evening, his mother picked him and his girlfriend up at a family friend's house. <laughs> they say his mother picked him up at a family friend's house. Actually, the, the stories change quite a bit. Sometimes it's sometimes the father's also involved. Sometimes sometimes Eddie Hutchison's involved. Uh, sometimes it's the mother. He was not picked up at a family friend's house. He was picked up at Alexander's laundromat on Missouri Street. They were fairly consistent about that. They'd gone down there with Jason Baldwin to, at least this is the story, they'd gone down there with Jason Baldwin to uh, watch Jason mow his great uncle's Hubert's grass and decided to leave for some reason. In some versions, Jason leaves with them, more Early versions, later versions, Jason stays in Moe's. Uh, wouldn't have taken him that long to cut the grass, so it's not out of the range of possibility that 
indeed uh jason gets through cutting the grass they go over to Ale all of them, three of them go over to alexander's laundromat call somebody call uh over to Eccles house his mother father or both come pick him up they take domini home they could have left domini and and uh, jason and uh, lakeshore it's not out of the realm of possibility at all in fact it's not even out of the realm of likelihood dropped his girlfriend off at her house and then damien said he spent the rest of his night at home talking on the telephone with a friend he, he said he was talking with a friend he said he was talking to some girls that all deny that he was talking to him that evening and he doesn't mention this the sanders visit as part of the alibi in that particular thing so that was something new that he added later and now that never mentions anymore that was part of his alibi that got shot down so he falls back on the phone call girls who also don't offer an alibi despite whatever bob ruff has to say about it rich then said who do you think did it and damien responded probably somebody looking for a thrill then according to ridge he asks damien if his religious beliefs can make sense of this horrific crime there was according to according to uh ridge you know that they can't just take his notes for what they were they can't just say and then ridge asked damien this question or, or according to dan what you know they, they, they three victims ridge later wrote that damien said that in wicca the number three was an important number and blood had special significance detective bridge was like whoa we got a lack of blood here and we got three victims we're on to something we're on the right track beth Karras is putting words into brian ridge's mouth he didn't say those things he did not say oh we're on to something uh, we got lack of blood here, blah, blah, blah. When Detective Ridge asks Damien if water has a special meaning of any sort in the Wicca religion, Damien delivers a bombshell saying, yes, water in the Wicca religion has a demon-like force. I don't know why that's a bombshell. Damien also told Ridge that all humans have a demonic force within them that they can control. Damien plays right into the theory that he was involved in some sort of cult. Damien Eccles is now suspect number one. But the problem for detectives is they don't have any evidence, so. Actually, they do have evidence. They've got eyewitnesses seeing Damien Eccles walking away from the scene of the crime. And before long, they would have another evidence and they have William Jones coming forward and saying that Eccles confessed to it. Now, William Jones didn't testify at trial along with Buddy Lucas and with uh, Ken Watkins, who all had different different sorts of different confessions going on there with them. But at the time of the arrest, they thought that they had that in play as well. They let him go. They let him, they let him go because they didn't, ha they didn't have the sighting and the questions and so forth was not enough to arrest him. They needed to have more information than that. And people have been arrested and, and convicted on just eyewitness accounts. So in theory, they if they really were just determined to close the case out, they could have done it on May, May 9th and said, well, we got an eyewitness that says you were leaving the scene of the crime with muddy clothes. Good enough for us. Uh, 
You know, it's a stretch, but it, it could have been done. Gators clear Chris Morgan and resolve to track the new suspect's movement. Investigators clear Chris Morgan and resolve to track. This is the timeline's totally different. Chris Morgan investigation, and the, there was no clearing Chris Morgan so that they could then track uh, Damian Eccles. It just didn't work that way. Chris Morgan was a side, uh, you know, a sort of a side investigation. The West Memphis police weren't heavily involved with that. They were corresponding with the police in California. Uh, it became pretty clear at some point that Chris Morgan was not, uh, they didn't have enough on him to charge him with anything. Uh, they really didn't have any evidence against him at all, except the fact that he knew one of the boys. He moved to California, and then he, he made... Uh, a somewhat anonymous statement and that they took as maybe some sort of half-assed confession. And soon, an unexpected informant steps forward. Police suddenly... I'm going to stop here. This is enough. They get into Vicki Hutchison and I'm just not going to go there today. So let's see how we are. Excuse me for any clicks or anything going on here, but I've got to get into my system. Uh, one nine one. Oh, you can stop listening now. I'm not going to say anything else. I've got. Uh, Problem. Okay, I am going to stop it.